You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Ariana Sylvester from Lifestyle Builders. This is Mark from Vital Dollar. This is George from Just, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Which is better? I have worked for other people. I have been an employee, a number, a faceless bot tasked to do a job, a cog. I have been herded and disrespected and discounted. My money saving and efficiency improvements have been overlooked. I've been asked to do jobs above my pay grade and below, humiliated at times and celebrated at others. My 401k has grown. My six weeks of vacation has been well spent. My bi-monthly paychecks have been counted on and my quarterly bonuses welcomed. I have both loved and despised working for other people. I have started my own businesses, reveled in the freedom of not having a boss, worked 80 to 100 hours a week with very little monetary gain, spent weeks worrying about when the next dollar would come in. I've seen my income double and then even triple. I have lost money and time, failed over and over again, and worried constantly about where to get health insurance. I have succeeded more than most and worried more than most. I have both loved and despised working for myself. Our economy has changed. Digital technology has made freelancing, side hustling, and entrepreneurship more attainable than ever. Yet we are all still slaves to the same pressures, success, luck, a bad economy. Today, more than ever, the question remains at the forefront of our collective minds, is now a good time to start a business? And speaking of starting a business, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S dot com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Mark is a full-time blogger and internet marketer since 2008 with blogs in different industries like web design, photography, and finance. He is the founder of the personal finance blog, VitalDollar.com, and has successfully sold multiple websites. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doc. Happy to be here. You are one of those rare birds who seems to excel in making and selling websites. I know that's something people are profoundly interested in, so I look forward to talking to you about that more during the podcast. Yeah, I look forward to it too. George Kurtaika is a focused entrepreneur and executive leader who has worked diligently to execute effective rapid growth. 
He co-founded Joust to bring banking and payments to a massive underserved market, drove business growth at Simple, guided larger banks and incubating startups, and led projects and teams at PayPal, Nokia, and Samsung. George, thanks for being on. It's great to be here. Ariana Sylvester is a lifestyle builder, entrepreneur, and business consultant with three thriving and very different businesses of her own. Ariana brings a variety of experience and knowledge. Her businesses include a real estate company, a retail wine and liquor store, and a coaching company while also raising her two kids. Ariana, I should note that you run all these ventures with your husband too, Tom. I do. (laughs) Tom has been on the podcast before as of you, and I really enjoyed talking to him. So I'm glad to have you back. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So George, I want to start with you. We're going to be talking about businesses today, and I'm wondering at what point in your career did you get interested in this idea of small businesses? Yeah, that's a good question, Doc. Um, uh, you know, I would say I, I sort of was bit by the entrepreneurial bug later in life, but having grown up, uh, you know, on the East Coast and family of, of sort of local like entrepreneurs, folks that have you know, run dry cleaning shops and, and corner delis in a little Italian neighborhood in Connecticut. I was always fascinated by the idea of small business. And after spending, you know, maybe 10, 15 years working for corporate America, I thought, you know, there's, there's got to be a better way. Like, I'm tired of making money for someone else. And, and I thought maybe going into business for myself would be great. And lo and behold, you know, it's been a great two-year journey of finding this company, Joust, and I don't think I could ever go back, to be honest. And it, and it sort of inspired me, especially leading out of the 2008, the last financial crisis, to see how workforce dynamics have changed and like a shift in labor economics and more people going to work for themselves. And I thought, well, I've seen all these inefficiencies at big banks that, that didn't know how to lend to this new economy. And that's what sort of gave me the inspiration to say, I think, you know, technology can solve this problem and let's give the independent workforce the ability to unlock liquidity based on the work that they do. So sort of a longer, longer answer to that, but that's sort of where I think I've, I've come to appreciate and sort of want to help small businesses by, by starting one myself. George, I love the fact that you say you came to entrepreneurship later in life, and I'm looking at you over video, and you look about 25, 30 years old. So I'm wondering exactly how much later in life it could be. Mark, you started in entrepreneurship fairly early on in your career. Talk to us a little bit about your transition from being an employee to going into entrepreneurship. I worked in a few different jobs in my 20s after college, and my first three jobs, I think, lasted one year each, and then my fourth job, I was in it for about three to four years. And during that time, I started a side hustle designing websites. And I started a blog, a web design blog that was attached to the same businesses, you know, designing websites. And I never really saw myself owning a business or doing anything entrepreneurial. It was really just out of frustration with my career at that point. I had kind of bounced around a few different jobs. And I, you know, I never felt like I had a future at any of the jobs. I, my response was to look for a job that gave me better opportunities. And then I'd get in that job, do it for six months or so and see that I was going nowhere and get frustrated and look for something else. And after a while, it was like, you know, I've been doing this for several years now and it's not getting me anywhere. You know, maybe I should do something different. And initially when I very first started or when I had the idea to do it, it was really just to make a little bit of extra money. And then as soon as I got started, 
I pretty much immediately saw like there's real potential here. Like I could possibly turn this into something full time and then not have to wait on an employer to give me a chance for some job that I think I can do. But yeah, so it was really just out of frustration with not having opportunities that I knew I could do more than the jobs that I had, but I just felt like I couldn't get a break or couldn't get ahead. And so, you know, starting something on my own wound up being a solution that I'd hadn't seen coming. And this was pretty early in your career, right? Yeah, I was probably 28, 27, 28 when I first started. And it was, I guess I was 28 when I really started taking it seriously when I really started, when I started the blog and really started working on it. And then it took me about a year and a half until I left my job. It was the same week that I turned 30 was when I left my full-time job. Ariana, take me back to college graduation. Being a small businesswoman was not what you thought you had for your future, was it? No, I graduated with a zoology degree and had, you know, kind of that traditional path in mind. We had a five-year plan we're going to graduate. We were going to find jobs. We were going to buy a house together, get married, have kids, you know, the, the white picket fence ideal. And all of that really shifted for me when Tom like got the entrepreneurial bug. He had the epiphany that he didn't want to be stuck in a cubicle. His degree was in software development. He didn't want to be stuck in a cubicle working till he was 45. And, you know, the job, while he did really enjoy computers. He didn't enjoy the politics and the corporate environment and all of those things that kind of came along with it. And me with my zoology degree, I was one of those students who had followed my passion as everyone told me and I loved animals. But what I didn't really realize was coming out of that into real life that didn't give me a lot of options and the options it did give me were not ones that I was interested in. So I ended up finding just random jobs that weren't even in my degree. I was an executive assistant and I did work at an animal shelter for a short period of time until an injury. But it was just, it was kind of not what either of us had planned. And because Tom had found that entrepreneurial bug, he started thinking, well, I want to retire by 35. Like I want to be my own boss. I don't want to have to work for other people. And I was not of any such thought process. So we kind of got into business due to Tom's motivations and Tom's pushing for this ideal that he had envisioned for us. And uh, it was a very long and gradual road for me to go from that first point where he decided we were going to start a real estate business to now being a, you know, we have three businesses and I am in, I'm a full-time entrepreneur right alongside him. Ariana, was there a specific point where your mindset pivoted? Can you remember or was it just gradually through the years? It's very, very gradual through the years. I think at each business that we started, because of course we started one 12 years ago, the real estate, we started the retail wine and liquor store eight years ago, and then the online business about five years ago. So it was kind of like at each point, I, I bought a little bit more in. I stepped a little bit further into those shoes of being an entrepreneur. But for me, it really wasn't until we had the online business and we started attracting people to our story and the fact that we were doing this together as a couple to make me realize that I had my own merits, even though I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur for all this time. So I think that was the point where I really had that thought of like, okay, I'm still an entrepreneur. There are many different definitions of what that means, and I can make my own definition. 
George, it seems to me that both Mark and Ariana are talking about transitioning into a career in entrepreneurship earlier on. And as you said so yourself, you started a little bit later. What do you think your roadblocks were at the beginning of your career? And what in general for people tend to be roadblocks keeping them from entrepreneurship? I think sort of borrow from something that Ariana said, which is, you know, you had that plan. And I think the mentality is you're going to go to a, you know, a great university for your school. You're going to get a job with a, with a company and stay there for 10 or 15 years, 20 years, get a 401k, save for retirement, have a couple of kids, right? Like the, that path. And somewhere along the way, I, I realized that probably wasn't going to be the good path. And it took me a while to figure out what was sort of mentally blocking me. And I had a really good, like early 10 year, almost 10 year career with Nokia back when they were like the, you know, most people probably don't even know who they are anymore. But when they were the number one you know, mobile phone manufacturer in the world, I got to live in multiple countries. I get to live in the UK, Ireland, Finland, Germany, East Coast, West Coast of the United States. And I thought it was great. And then once that came to an end, I would say that I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll just go find another job like that. And and I think really what, and, and I don't think I've ever found one until I've sort of, you know, started Joust and I felt like what was missing was that family. Like it felt like, like it doesn't feel like work. I mean, it's a lot of work, trust me. Like, you know, I work more than I've ever worked in my entire life, but it's, but it feels like you're part of something, right? You're part of family. And, and so when it feels like that, that's sort of what I was missing. I feel like not to get too sort of sentimental, but Nokia was a very company from Finland, you know, like it issues these, these interesting values of nature and, and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of socialism in there, right? Cause it's a, it's a country that takes care of its people, but they're also the happiest people on earth. They're constantly voted the happiest people on earth because they have a great social safety net because they have free education, free healthcare. And so there's something to be said about that. And, you know, I think as we look at sort of, as an independent contractor today or an entrepreneur, I think you said this, Doc, the, the, am I looking for healthcare? You're, you're constantly wondering sometimes, like, I don't have healthcare, but, but I'd rather be doing this than working for a big company. So yeah, I think those mental blocks were more like we were, were brought up to be thought that it's, uh, you, know, you have to go to school and get a job and, and save for retirement. And if you, you can't leave your job because you won't have healthcare, and I think those were all the blocks. And then at, at some point, I just figured to throw caution to the wind and take the risk to, to go and do something. And I think that's what it is. Entrepreneurship is almost reaching that sort of chasm of how risk averse you are. And I think at some point, I just said, I'm, I'm going to do this. But mentally, it was hard to get to that point. Mark, let's talk a little bit about those mental roadblocks. Back in 2007, 2008, you were an employee. You were finding that you were not enjoying work and moving up the way you wanted to. Tell us a little bit about your mindset at that point, and specifically, how did you even know where to start when it came to digital entrepreneurship? How did you begin? I kind of got started my last semester in college. I took a course, it was an elective course. My major was in business and I took a course on web design and it was very basic, you know, throughout the semester, we learned a little bit of the basics of HTML and a little bit of like web graphics and stuff. And by the end of a semester, we were able to put up a very basic, very ugly website, but it was enough that I really got interested in it and continued to learn on my own after the course just reading books and articles online and, you know, just kind of messing around on my own time. 
and this was over the course of several years. So I, I graduated in 2002. And like I said, I didn't really start my side hustle until 2007. So there was like a five-year gap in there where I was off and on, you know, slowly reading and learning. And I had an interest in it, but it wasn't anything that I really saw as a, as a career or like anything. I wasn't thinking about starting a business at that point. And I was content to go on that path that we've been talking about. You know, just I always assumed I would go to college, get a good job, work hard, too well. I never really thought about what would happen if I got out and I couldn't find a job that I didn't like. I was very frustrated and it's just hard to deal with not being able to find a job that I liked because I knew that I was capable of doing more than the jobs that I had. And it was just like, you know, these obstacles kept preventing me from getting ahead. So with most of the jobs that I had, I did well. I'd get really good reviews. My boss liked me, but I was on like a really small team and there were just no opportunities. And, you know, it wasn't even that I had a boss that just refused to give me a chance. It was, there just wasn't opportunities or when something did come up, you know, somebody else would get hired from another department or something. And it was very frustrating. And it was over the course of several years that it, it kind of built up a combination of that frustration along with also, like I said, just working on stuff on my own and getting to a point where I started to get a little bit more comfortable, I thought, you know, this is something I can do to start to make a little bit of extra money. And then once I got started, really loved it and really saw the opportunity to, to get away from some of the frustration that I had with my job. Ariana, let's talk about some of those obstacles Mark was mentioning. I know in my own trajectory, one of the biggest obstacles has been my own limiting beliefs, my own belief that I can accomplish things that maybe I can. Let's talk a little bit about how you felt about business from the beginning when Tom was slowly pushing you towards entrepreneurship. What did you believe about business that you now think differently? I had to giggle to myself because George was talking about being risk averse. And that was me. I was not a risk taker. I never have been. I don't enjoy gambling. I don't do things that I am not good at. So to come into being a business owner and the entrepreneurship world was absolutely terrifying. And on top of that, it was, it was also the personal side of life, you know, where Tom and I had just gotten married. We were starting a life together. The plan was to have kids. So that risk aversion was also kind of around like, what is this going to mean for our life? Like we're trying to start a family here and this is making me very uncertain about what that's going to look like. So a lot of my limiting beliefs, a lot of my mindset blocks very early on were, this is scary. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I don't think we should be taking risks because this is the life we said we wanted. And this seems like it could go the other way that we're not, you know, the path that we're, we're deviating on is not necessarily an automatic to get us to where we want to be. As we started each of the businesses, some of my beliefs about myself were, okay, well, I can do certain tasks because I felt qualified. Like I was an admin assistant for my job. So when I started helping Tom with the real estate business, I was like, oh, I can be an office manager. It's pretty much just being an admin assistant. You just do the things and you have a specific set of tasks and there's a certain way that you do those tasks. So I felt very comfortable, not that I wanted to do it, but it was helping support Tom's dream. So I felt comfortable stepping into that role. Same thing when we opened the wine and liquor store, brand new industry, completely different industry from real estate. 
but it was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to, again, I'm going to be the manager of the store. So it was stepping into some of those same sorts of roles. I had to get over some limiting beliefs around being a manager of people because in the real estate business, you know, it was tenants we were dealing with, but I didn't have an entire team of people below me that I was managing. So I had to learn how to communicate with employees, how to set up certain tasks and processes in our business so that our employees knew what they what their responsibilities were, that they were taken care of. We knew the information that we needed to have on our end of the business. So that for me was a really uncomfortable step forward. Again, all of these things were just like little cogs pushing me further into the business engine. But I think the biggest mindset block that I had to overcome was when we stepped into the online space. So when Tom came into the businesses, he'd always kind of been the business man. He listened to podcasts. He read all the books. He had always been interested in business as we kind of came down this path, even back in college. He had started businesses when he was younger. He had an Amazon book business in college. So this was always this bug that he he kind of had, whereas I was brand new to this and I didn't really, I didn't have the interest. I just had been pushed along this path because he had the motivation to start businesses. I was trying to be the supportive spouse and help him run those businesses. So for me, it was this thought that I didn't have the business knowledge. I didn't have relevant knowledge for people that we were trying to help being business coaches and consultants. Um, Sure, I had helped him open businesses, but I didn't I didn't have the connection where that qualified me automatically to help other people. And for years, I mean, this was something that took me years to get over was that I had to kind of find my own role in our partnership because Tom is that guy and everybody knows that Tom's that guy. But what we kept hearing over and over again was that people wanted to hear my perspective because it was different, because I brought different experiences, because I had a different mind around how those things had happened. And I'm the detailed one who would talk about more of the emotional side of things and like real life, whereas Tom was the business guy. So he tended to talk about business. So I think my biggest limiting belief that I had to overcome was that I brought my own value to this business coaching partnership that Tom and I have together. George, Ariana talks about this idea that her husband, Tom, was the business guy. And I realize in my life, too, one of the limiting beliefs is I just don't have that many people in my life I see creating small businesses. So I think at one point in my life, I said, well, people don't just do this. I want to take advantage of some of the research you did while starting Joust. How big is the micro-entrepreneur, small business, freelance ecosystem here in the U.S.? Yeah, so excellent question. You know, the Small Business Association in the U.S. says, you know, there's something like 35 million small businesses. But if you add in the 50 other million people that have part-time work or gig work or supplement their income or do some contracting on the side, you're talking about 85 million people in the United States. And that's not an insignificant number considering that, you know, what we just saw happen this week in, in, in the news and an economic, and I hate to call it a stimulus bill, but it's you know, one of the first times I think we've ever seen a national law passed it to give relief to freelance workers who, who find themselves out of work due to the pandemic due to coronavirus. And so 
that's a almost an aha moment. I and mean, we've we've seen a lot of legislation from New York protecting freelance workers to California classifying workers as freelance workers for ride sharing economy. But this is a massive market. And again, this was, you know, we looked at a bunch of different case studies, really good organization in New York called Freelancers Union, who we partnered with early on to, to, to do a lot, conduct a lot of this research. And, you know, what we saw was the, the, there was a wide gap, right? There's, if you look at the top end of the small business to medium business, you know, companies that might have 20 or 30 people all the way down to the solo entrepreneur is that 85 million base. And they all have unique needs. Folks at the sort of higher end of that, that value chain is, are, they're probably well served with their business bank account at their large business bank. But as you start to go down the funnel and you're the, the person who's maybe starting to freelance on the side, or you're augmenting your income, or you're deciding to make that jump full time, a lot of the things you don't realize is Oh wait a second! Like I might not make enough money to qualify for a mortgage, or you know, I have to use my personal savings or credit cards in order to bridge a gap between clients or invoices that I'm sending. And that's when we said, "Listen, the the, the banking ecosystem in this country has not caught up with the shift in labor economics. The fact that there's 85 potentially million people." that are underserved in the United States is just like, how have the big banks overlooked that, right? And during my time that, that sort of at, um, at a previous company, JP Morgan Chase, which we did a sort of a, a research study on this and, and like there's a giant gap that exists between consumer bank accounts and traditional business bank accounts. And in there is everything from an Airbnb host to an Uber driver to a dog walker to a contractor. And their needs are, are very unique. And so that's when you start to think about, well, what, what are some other ways to provide, you know, people need access to credit, they need loans. So what are some ways to do that? And, and, you know, at Joust, we looked at, well, invoice factoring is a great way to do it. What we started with was looking at, you know, sort of risk and, and like your ability to pay and the, your, the person you're invoicing and their ability to pay. And we said, well, let's, let's build a model that works Maybe for invoicing today, but in the future, can it be a model that works for getting a loan or a mortgage even? Because you can make $100,000 a year or more as an independent contractor or a solo worker, and you won't qualify for a mortgage because you're still a 1099 employee. So yeah, you know, that was sort of the inspiration around it is future of work and shift in labor economics that, that said, hey, we've got a giant opportunity here to help the, the small business owner. Mark, let's talk about the risk of being a small business owner. You have sold websites. You're a digital entrepreneur. How reproducible is that for your average person out there trying to get away from the employed framework? I think it's very realistic. Like you said, I've sold some businesses. And the nice thing about selling is you get a lump sum of money, obviously. The bad thing is you basically have to start over. And, you know, I've started over a few times and it's not necessarily fun to start over, but it is, you know, it is something that's repeatable. You learn different processes that, that tend to be able to be duplicated from one industry to another. I, I do think it's realistic in terms of risk. Before I started, I always saw entrepreneurship as, as risky. I didn't really want to start a business because I didn't want that risk. I saw being an employee is a safer option. But, you know, as I started, I, I kind of changed my view on that a bit. So 
when I left my job in 2008, the economy was pretty bad. About six months before I left my job, about at least 25% of the employees at my company got laid off. And I wasn't one of them, but I had a lot of friends that lost their jobs all in one day. And that kind of changed my opinion a bit. Like there were people who had been with the company for years and years and were well paid and, you know, they thought they had a stable job and all of a sudden one day their job was gone. I think there are some advantages to being a small business owner. I can adjust pretty quickly as a, you know, a one-man operation. If something doesn't go right with my business, I can adjust and offer a new product, a new service, do something totally different. It doesn't take me all that long to, to shift. Whereas a bigger company, if they have to completely change you know, their approach to business, it's going to take, could take years to, to make a major change in business. Whereas as a, a one-man operation, you can shift and make changes pretty quickly. So there are some risks to it, but I think in some ways you avoid some of the risks that you have with a regular job. In a normal job as an employee, you think that the more seniority or the higher pay you are, the safer you'll be. But in a lot of cases, it's exact opposite. You just make yourself more vulnerable to a layoff. You know, there are pros and cons, but I think there are ways to look at it where in some ways you do gain some safety by by being a small business owner. Ariana, let's talk a little bit about risk and pivoting. How big of a role does failure play in the building of a new business? Well, Tom loves to talk about failing and how it is absolutely essential in order to learn lessons and pick up and move on in your business. So obviously over the years, starting three different businesses, we have failed at many things. And then besides those three, there have also been other businesses that we tried and didn't end up working. So it's definitely been a theme along the way where, you know, things don't work out and a lot of people do consider it a failure, but when you look at it through a different light, it's really just a mistake that's teaching you a lesson moving forward to help you improve upon how you run your business or how you make decisions going forward. In the first half of the show, Mark, Ariana, and George talk about the benefits of entrepreneurship. After the break, we discuss what has been the effect of the COVID pandemic. But first... This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right, but sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great, and therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was seven years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot earn. 
Want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. So, George, I want to transition this conversation a little bit. You mentioned the stimulus package that was just passed by Congress. This is March 27th, 2020. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our economy has slowed down quite a bit. Talk to me a little bit about the pros and cons of starting a new business in this environment. Yeah, this is, uh, it's a very interesting time. I think something like 3 million unemployment claims yesterday. And if you look at it on a graph compared to 2008, it's, it's 2008 looks like a mere blip compared to how many people filed for unemployment. So my only inspiration here I could take from 2008 is, is out of 2008, we saw the birth of, of, of sort of this new economy. Mark mentioned, you know, 2008, he saw a lot of his friends getting laid off, uh, happened to my co-founder, and you know that's what sort of inspired him to get into entrepreneurship. We saw companies like Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, all sort of born out of uh, that time. And and so the old trope is it's never been a better time to start a company. But the reality is, and and even in my world of of, of working for founding a tech startup and, and going out and trying to raise money, the, the capital markets have sort of all figured, like said, well, we're gonna we're gonna wait and see this out and. So if you don't have sort of this nest egg or maybe some startup capital saved to set aside, you know, to, to, to start this business, it's a pretty risky proposition. We don't know how long the economy is going to be shut down. But, but if you are affected, I mean, I, I think there is some inspiration behind the fact that you might have two, three, four months of, of, of pay coming in courtesy of, of the federal government and the stimulus package. And and that and we're all stuck at home, which is another unique situation. So take the opportunity to learn something potentially in your spare time. Ariana mentioned, you know, her husband and like listening to podcasts. And I think that is going to be something where we're seeing a lot of companies really step up offering free products and services. I mean, it's it's free customer acquisition. You've got a real captive audience at home right now. So in a way, probably never a better time to maybe start a side hustle throw up a website, like Mark was saying, put a podcast out, not to say that we want to compete with you, Doc. But I think it's a really great time to maybe find that creative spark as we're all stuck at home and you've got access to a bunch of data now to, to help you learn something. And, and maybe this is just the, the sort of motivation that you need to, to, to bridge that gap and, and maybe take a little bit more risk with your life. Ariana, you're in this interesting position in which you have both a brick and mortar business as well as digital businesses. Contrast how you feel like this new economy is going to affect both of them. Well, we, we technically we have the two brick and mortars and it's affecting each of them very differently. The real estate business, we have a, a lot of rental properties and it's kind of one of those moments where we're holding our breath waiting to see what happens because many of our tenants will most likely have lost income from their jobs being closed. So as a business owner trying to decide what's the best course of action here, everyone is in the same boat. We are all experiencing financial hardships and New York State has actually stopped processing any evictions during this time. So we're at this mode where we kind of don't have too 
many options at our disposal. So with our with our tenants, we've kind of put it out there and said, you know, contact us if you are experiencing financial hardships. We will work something out during this time. And that we've reached out to the bank as a lot of banks are offering mortgage delays or forbearances. So for us, we're trying to take advantage of that just in the in the knowledge that many of our tenants may not be able to pay rent in the next few months. So managing that as best we can, talking about our options there. Now on the flip side, you go the other 180 degrees and our retail wine and liquor store is similar to the grocery stores where people are stocking up and it has seen almost a doubling in our sales numbers every week because everyone's stuck at home now. A lot of people are stuck at home with kids and a lot of people are afraid that things won't be there when they go the next time. So they're stocking up just to make sure that they have them. We have people buying cases of wine. So that business is very much like you said earlier, George, a little bit more recession-proof. Alcohol has always been one of those businesses, which is in part why Tom originally chose Wine and Liquor Store. But again, they're trying to manage this pandemic has put a little bit of a strain on that because we have to be concerned about our employees and being able to keep our small business open. Heaven forbid something happen. Also managing our, we had to kind of change our ordering structure and trying to keep everything in stock for all these customers, changing our policy about how many people are allowed in the store at one time to stay compliant with New York state mandates. So those brick and mortar businesses, it's really fully dependent on industry and also where you're located geographically because you could be in a state where it hasn't been affected too much and still be able to run versus being in a state like New York where all non-essential businesses have to close. And luckily for us, we are considered essential. In the online space though, I think there's so much more room to pivot because we do have, like Mark was talking about, that ability to just adjust quickly, to change offers, to change your message, to change what you're selling or who you're selling it to. Obviously, we've already been in this online world. So doing calls via Zoom is not a new concept for us. Managing our business over the internet, not a new concept for us. So working remotely, not a new concept. So I think our online business has the most ability to pivot and shift. But I've also seen a lot of brick and mortars during this time shifting because they have to, offering delivery, offering curbside pickup, doing anything that they can to kind of manage their small business during this pandemic. Mark, talk to this about how your digital entrepreneurship is changing. Have you found yourself feeling like you need to pivot as the economy worsens? No, it hasn't really had a huge impact um, on me. To be honest, the biggest change is that I have to work with kids in the house right now because they're not at school. But as far as my work goes, I haven't really had too much impact. Within the past week, there have been a few affiliate programs that I'm a part of that have either been shut down or have changed terms or reduced payouts and stuff. So that's been an inconvenience, but nothing you know drastic. The one thing that I think has been interesting on my blog where I write about finance, I write about topics related to managing money, saving money, investing to some extent, and making money. And it's been interesting to see how the search trends have changed within the past few weeks. A lot of the stuff on what we would consider like mainstream finance topics like managing money and investing and stuff are down. People just aren't really searching for that sort of thing right now. But when it comes to making money from home, those types of topics are up. 
And so fortunately for me, I have a little bit of both. So some things are down and other things are up and overall it's fairly level to where it was before. So it's just interesting to see, you know, some opportunities may go away, but other opportunities present themselves and there are other ways to, to help people who are looking for that information at this time. George, talk to me a little bit about your clients, which are mostly freelancers and small business people. How is their mood as the economy changes and what are you guys doing to help them cope? Yeah. So we, we empathize quite a bit with the freelancers. We were scheduled to display. We were nominated for an award at South by Southwest. The event got canceled and we felt, first of all, you know, we moped a little bit because we're like, oh no, we, we just spent all this money on badges and booths and all the stuff to demo at South by. And then we realized, oh wow, there's probably a lot of people really hurting. They were waiting for this massive event, you know, $350 million to the local economy. So musicians, artists, you know, sound engineers, folks that all come to South by to work in the music festival and the film, and they're not going to get paid now. And so we reached out and quickly threw up uh, a landing page and, and offered uh, anyone affected by South by free payments processing and credits for, you know, for, for our jobs platform. And we got a tremendous response and, and it allowed us to sort of take a look and say, well, there's something else that we can do. You know, can we look at if you have any outstanding invoices, maybe we could help by purchasing them if you have a contract. And so we sort of looked at maybe waiving our, our sort of rules or at least relaxing them a little bit to see if we could help folks out. And, and yes, we, we saw like great response to that. And I feel, I feel great that we were able to help out. And then, you know, we started looking around and there were other events around the country that kept getting canceled. And so we're sort of proactively reaching out to, to the freelance community now and, and just saying, listen, guys, you know, we're, we may not be able to help you in the current situation, but once things sort of get back to normal, hope you please consider us as well. And, and that's what we're seeing, right? The, the, the creative freelancer that we're sort of, that we, that our, our bank is probably well designed for, it's, it's not necessarily the long tail Uber driver because you can get paid in the app by pressing a button, you get instantly paid. But what we're seeing is the creative professional who was supposed to go to South by and, and work 10 gigs is now forced to go and, and do DoorDash or Instacart. I saw that Instacart is hiring 300,000 people, Amazon hiring 100,000 people. As everyone is sitting at home and restaurants are shifting to delivery mode, these industries are, are saying we need more people. And so a, a creative freelancer who might find themselves without work now is saying, well, I guess I can bridge the gap by going to do this for a little bit until things pick back up. And so we're trying to figure out how we could help them in, in, in sort of both, you know, both regards, both the now and in the future for us to, it feels rewarding to help uh, folks out in that, in that time of need. Ariana, a part of your and Tom's business is coaching young entrepreneurs, uh, getting them into the business getting them to help understand how they can create their own businesses. Tell me about the mood of your clients right now. Are they hopeful? Are they worried? I think a lot of people are worried at this point. I mean, most of our audience are family entrepreneurs. So a lot of people had spouses who had a job who may no longer have a job. Many of our, our audience have kids. So while I think that on some level, you know, you're hopeful that your, your business is going to withstand this, this test that we're currently going through, you're in the online space, you know, many of our customers or our audience has figured out their messages and who they're helping and how they're providing a service. 
But I think life and business are so closely intertwined that that uncertainty of how things are going to go moving forward, most of us are more on that worry side, but also like, okay, well, how can we continue to show up for our own audiences and continue serving people also managing this bubble of uncertainty and trying to make sure that our families are okay. So I'm going to guess that a lot of people are feeling both right now. Mark, take us into the future. Five years, 10 years, we're going to get past this pandemic at some point. We're going to get past this economic downturn. Do you think there will be more entrepreneurship than there is today? Do you think the percentages will have flipped between employed and self-employed? I would expect that the percentages will continue to rise as we've seen, you know, George mentioned earlier about the numbers of freelancers and I've seen similar statistics to been pretty significant growth over the past five, 10 years. And I would expect that will probably continue to increase. There's definitely more opportunities now, not only for freelancing, but you know, just different ways in the gig economy to make money. So I would anticipate that, you know, those numbers would continue to rise. I think a lot of people are interested in obviously working from home, was something a lot of people wanted to do before. I think people are going to want to do it even more now. And there's obviously a a lot of people who are interested in having flexibility to travel, which people at the current moment, people aren't really traveling, but there are a lot of people who aspire to become a digital nomad and work remotely. And so I would anticipate that that will continue to increase. George, the old saying, right, is that you can't turn coal into diamonds without pressure. This certainly feels like a lot of pressure right now. What types of small business diamonds do you see coming in the future? Yeah, I'd say interesting looking at sort of the, some of the macro numbers of, of how shift in, in, in the way people are going to work. I think that what's going to happen, it, it, the fact that we're all sort of now getting used to working remotely companies are, if you're not doing it, you were forced to do it in these last couple of weeks. It has, I think, maybe softened some people up when we start hiring again to say, oh, you know, I'm a, if I'm a small business owner and I need some talent or something, it's okay if I hire someone remotely or if I go to the freelance workforce or if I augment my staff with, with a freelancer because you've been, we've, we've been through this, right? This, this sort of this pandemic. So I, I think, you know, a, a diamond in the rough or, or diamond out of the coal would be, I think this is going to accelerate both the future of work of people going to work for themselves and people who may have been uncomfortable with maybe hiring a remote worker to do so now because, hey, hey, look, it turns out maybe you're more productive at home because you're not being constantly bothered in the office by somebody. <laughs> so I'd like to think that those will be some of the positive outcomes that come after this this pandemic and think uh, it, it should, you know, like that seems to be the trend right now. Ariana, it seems to me that the use of digital and remote services are probably on the rise, especially in our current environment. Yeah, I think so for sure. I think there's a lot of people that didn't realize how much was out there before as they were working for their employers and now are kind of jumping into this remote position and the, they're having their eyes open to this entire world of all of us entrepreneurs who were kind of already doing this. And I think it's going to shift the culture of a lot of small businesses and having employees have a little bit more freedom and, and changing a little bit of that economic culture of what it looks like for people to go to work. And I think it can only be an improvement and it will continue to be an improvement. What I love about this conversation is that 
you guys, all three of you are in the trenches of small business. And what I hear is optimism. And at a time where I think a lot of us are feeling pessimistic about our futures, as well as our health, it's nice to hear that those who are out there creating and being involved in businesses see opportunities that we can all thrive together. So I think it's a good way to end the podcast. I'm going to give you a last question, which I give every episode. And I'll start with you, Ariana. What is up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, so up next in our life is uh, we're going to continue to shift and move our model around in the Lifestyle Builders business so that we can keep helping more entrepreneurs and people who want to become entrepreneurs in a way that will support the lifestyle that they want for their families. We've got our book out, so we're going to keep promoting that book. We were planning on doing more speaking this year, but I think most of that will probably end up being virtual speaking as many of the events have been canceled or have to be postponed until next year. And you can find us at wearelifestylebuilders.com and you can find the book there and our podcast as well. Yeah, talk about entrepreneurship. I had like 10 talks lined up for the next eight months or so. I did one digitally. I actually did two digitally. I had to cancel one. But I'm really hoping that by July or August, we'll be back out there into the world because I'd like to give some of these talks. George, same question to you. What's up next in your life and where can we find you online? Yeah. So as mentioned, I, you know, we're, we're looking to expand sort of our product offering and services to help both the current state of, of the way the economy looks and, and in the future of, you know, helping more, more folks become entrepreneurial. You could find us at joust.com, J-O-U-S-T. And we'd love to be able to, yeah, to, as you mentioned, Doc, you know, the, we, we had a bunch of events we were doing as well, and, and they've all been sort of canceled or postponed. And so, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing how, how things play out, but I'm incredibly humbled to be on the show today and, and, and to be able to you know, help out maybe a, a future entrepreneur bridge that, bridge that chasm. So thanks. And, and congratulations by the award at South by Southwest, even though it didn't happen, which I just, it's hard to think of a world in which South by Southwest doesn't occur. But the fact is that the award was still given whether you were able to get it in person or not. So congratulations. And last but not least, Mark, tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you? I can be found at vitaldollar.com. It's my personal finance blog. And what's up next for me is just continuing to work on the site and trying to grow. Specifically right now with the current situation, I think I'm going to be focusing on trying to get more content related to making money from home and online and trying to organize and structure the content that I have on the site so it's a little bit easier for people to find what they're looking for. And I'm also working on a blogging course. I have a blogging course that is live. I launched earlier this year. It's called Blog Launch Breakthrough. And right now I'm kind of going back through it and looking at ways to improve it, adding some new content and maybe some new resources that can help to make it more valuable. All right. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Mark from Vital Dollar, George Kurtaika from Joust, and Ariana Sylvester from Lifestyle Builders. That's a wrap. I just wanted to take a moment and thank all those who have left us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I was going to read a few off for you today. 
Rio1832 gave me five stars and said, thoughtful and thought-provoking. Doc G has an ever-changing rotation of guests with a wide array of perspectives that routinely challenge your way of thinking. It's a permanent feature in my podcast queue, and I love it. A must-listen if you're at all interested in personal finances. And Maddie Bernsey said, a different kind of financial podcast and gave me five stars. The thing that sets apart this podcast from others is how the topics and guests don't always follow the same footprints. Doc G does a great job interviewing the various types of guests to pull new info out and apply it to life. Thank you, Rio1832 and Maddie Bernsey. As you guys know, I put a lot of thought into who I have on the show, and I want to make sure that maybe you do know the name, but that you can't find this conversation anywhere else. I'd like to delve deeply into topics really explore what is the next level of the financial conversation. Thank you guys for leaving us a review. Leaving us a review and subscribing specifically helps us in the charts. It gets the Earn and Invest podcast better known and more listened to. So thanks a lot for your support. Now back to the show. So I am so excited to be here with two of my most favorite people, not just in the financial space, but people I love to hang out with. Julian and Kirsten Saunders are well known to just about everybody because of the rich and regular blog and platform. We've learned to love them and the content they produced through it, but there is something new in their lives and consequently something new in our lives, a YouTube series called Money on the Table. I am so amazingly and utterly impressed with it. But before we even get to that, Julian and Kirsten, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This is like our cheers bar. Cheers podcast. (laughs) You were like one of the last people we saw from the community uh, in person. That's true. And so before all of the the, the world went to hell in a handbasket. So we're happy to see you uh, again, my friend. And I'm wearing my shirt which is a happy coincidence. Yeah, Julian is wearing the economy shirt. That was the last place we saw each other. We were involved in the conference. And it's weird because you almost separate your life now into pre-COVID and post-COVID. So the way you said it was perfect before we separated from the world and stopped (laughs) seeing people. You guys have been busy. Let's talk about money on the table. First and foremost, before we get into it, After watching the first two episodes, it becomes so utterly clear that this is not your average two amateurs doing a YouTube show. Like, this is a produced, well-done show. You guys thought deeply, I imagine, about how you wanted this to come across. You put some time and energy in really making this look professional. What was going on behind that? Did, you didn't want to just come across with, with, hey, guys, we're back. Let's talk about money. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the original insights was that a lot of the YouTube videos that are out there and a lot of the ones that we've been watching, the creator is talking to the camera instead of talking to someone else and letting them kind of listen in. And maybe this is just my the voyeur part of me or the nosy or the eavesdropping part of me, but I always enjoy kind of being a fly on the wall with other people's conversations. That's how I learn to see how people are having real life, you know, dialogue about tough issues or funny issues. It just kind of sets a better example than what we see on TV, which is very scripted and 
um, does not do well with my perfectionism because that's just not how real conversations happen. And so uh, when we when we wanted to create a video, we wanted it to be authentic. And there's nothing more authentic to us than showing people how we actually talk. Yeah, I think also as a as a proud member of the personal finance and fire community, um, I, I think one of my favorite parts of the entire experience is when I'm engaged when I'm engaging in authentic and raw conversations. And so, you know, it, my favorite part, while I loved, let's say, your your speech at the economy, but my favorite part of being there was actually when we had dinner the night before, mm-hmm. and we were in in our walking back with Jillian, you know, like having these really interesting conversations on the go. And so I think I just thought I was like, you know, I feel like that's kind of what people really, really should hear. It's not just our, you know, the thoughts that we've rehearsed uh, and, and have prepared and written down, you know, it's, it's the freestyle, if you will, uh, on the cuff sort of thing that really uh, captures the essence of a point. I think that's when really everyone is at their best when they're not, you know, really thinking they're speaking from the heart. Um, and they're taking the good and the bad from that. Obviously, we edit what we're saying, um, but it's pretty raw. You know, there's good, there's bad, there's ranting, there's, you know, there's this foul language. It's all of the above, you know, and we just wanted to make sure uh, that we shared that because I think what it ultimately does is it invites people into the conversation that I don't think felt like they were a part of it. And by the conversation, I mean, this conversation within the broader personal finance community. So I wanted to remove the obstacle and invite as many people in um, as possible. And that's really where the food comes in. Kirsten, you mentioned authentic and you've both talked about real life. One thing I love about the show is having spent time with you guys personally and then watching the show, what you see when we're watching one of these episodes is very much authentic who you are and part of who you are and who we all are are these really complex individuals which means when you put a show together like this you know it's complicated you guys cover food you guys cover money there's definitely a bent towards social justice which is very much a part of your lives but then there's those quiet moments that really reflect on your relationship as husband and wife is it hard to fit it all in? I mean, I was amazed at how much you're able to pack in such a small amount of time, but it's also relevant. Uh, so I, I think this is the part where I give a lot of credit to our production team, um, because, you know, obviously we we put a lot of thought into what we want to talk about. And, you know, I, and we don't have lines, per se. We're just talking. Um, and so I, I don't want to say that it's, it's, it's hard because it really is just who we are. That is. That is our life. You know, I, I used to be a chef and I talk about food a lot. You know, she's from Texas. She has a completely different experience with money. Like, so that that part isn't really hard for us. Um, but we do have, we're really fortunate. We've got a team of really productive uh, videographers or cinematographers, really, and photographers that um, have helped to sort of take uh, what we've done with a little bit of instruction and a heavy dose of trust <laughs> and sort of bring that to life. And I think that's that's what people are seeing. And, and the response has been just amazing so far. It, it's doing what we hoped it would do and more. So I don't know that we could ask for much more than that. Kirsten, talk about the role food plays in the discussion, because I feel like 
you guys and finances are the leading role, but very close secondarily is the role of food in your lives and how it becomes a part of these conversations. Yeah. I mean, we kind of look at food as a canvas um, because you can have a conversation about the food that breaks up like the awkward moments where, you know, things might get tense or uh, you need just a break from the conversation to talk about the broth or olives or whatever you're eating. Um, but personally for me, like I'm, I'm not a cook. So there is a learning journey <laughs> in the show where I am learning how to properly cut an avocado without squishing it or how to enjoy an olive without gagging or <laughs> just try, <laughs> try Ho- new Hopefully foods. not gagging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to be a person who likes olives. I really do. I just have not <laughs> acquired the taste yet. So it's a, it's a practice. But it's just, it just goes to show that even your favorite experts, and I'm using air quotes, your favorite experts aren't good at everything. Like it's just a, a way to kind of uncover another aspect of ourselves and say, if I can learn how to do video production or, you know, cooking or gardening or whatever we're talking about, then everybody can learn, you know, something. Yeah. And I'll add strategically, it's, it's also bait for just being honest, right? Like it's bait. <laughs> Because the reality is we know that people, you know, very few of us going back to, you know, the sort of um, community, like we can talk about money all day. You know what I mean? Like we have no issues with that. We were, we're, we're nerds in that sense. We love it and we, we love each other for it. But not everyone is like that. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was like, let me draw them in with something that we know they like. Right. People love food. And, and I don't, you know, obviously I live in a bubble. I, I cooked professionally for years. And so for me, a lot of these things are just natural, the muscle memory, but I've come to learn that people love that stuff. You know, I don't even have cable like that. So even now, as I go in the seams, like, oh, there actually has been a lot of growth over the year. Like there's just a lot of food on TV. And so we said, why not just blend the two? Um, and it's also just us leaning into our strengths, you know? And so there's, there's not much um, to be concerned about things going awry because we're sort of, we're, we're in our sphere of, what do they call it? Sphere of power or something like that? <laughs> that I don't know. Genius? Sphere of genius. There you no, go. No, I don't, I don't you know even think I mean. it's <laughs> influence, <Yeah>. maybe. <laughs> Whatever. I'm leaning into my strengths. And so, I, I you know, if, even if something goes wrong, I, I can figure out a way, way out of it. Julian, if the food is bait, what certainly keeps us on our toes as we watch is this interaction between the two of you. Some of the most interesting moments are those moments of tension that Kirsten mentioned before, or the moments of tenderness. Is it hard to be on camera and yet still have what feel like these real life moments that I've seen you guys have in person too? So this is not like you're acting for the camera. This is very much you. How do you do it with, with the, you know, the film rolling? Um, we've been really lucky in that we've actually been part of quite a few video projects. We were in Playing With Fire. We worked with MarketWatch.com to do some things. And so we actually just grew to be comfortable with it. We did 60-second docs. Um, and I think, you know, leading up to why we even decided to do this, we said, well, what's the thing that we know really just connects with people? And more often than not, it was someone saying, hey, I saw this video of you guys and it was great. And so for us, we we just decided, well, hey, this is a great idea. Maybe we should, let's think about doing our own thing because one, that gives us the ability to tell our story or a story the way we want it to be told as opposed to just being 
actors, if you will, within somebody else's storyline. But it just, you know, we, we've had actually quite a bit of experience and we really enjoyed it too, which I think was the other thing it was like, man, this is actually really, really fun. It's, it's, it can be exhausting, but it, it's fun. And so we said, you know what, let's, let's do it. And um, it's also just our contribution to the community. Like let's, let's continue to raise the bar and do something unique. And, you know, it's a fun project. We love it. And like I said, the response has been really, really amazing so far. Kirsten, what do you think video adds to the dimension of the content you already have out there? So people and know and love you from reading your blog posts from the Rich and Regular platform. What do you think this adds to it? Does it draw different types of people in or does it give them a different nuance to the information you're trying to impart? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It draws in a new viewer and it gives nuance. There is a huge portion of language that's nonverbal, and you don't get to see that when you're reading someone's words. And depending on where you were raised, words either have a negative or a positive or even a neutral connotation that may not be your intent. So people like kind of decide what tone you're writing in, but when you're speaking and when they can see your eyebrows raised or when they can see a smile or a frown, like that changes the message a little bit, kind of humanizes the fact that we're talking about money and that you can talk about money the same way you talk about weather or a TV show that you really like. And so I just think it adds um, a layer of humanity to the conversation that writing and other sort of two-dimensional you know, mediums just don't have. Julian, it definitely adds a different visual to have video. You guys have been open about talking about social justice, the racial wealth gap. You now can add in another layer of videos and captions, and it really gives it a very different feel than maybe what you would have just when you write, which is very one-dimensional. Have you noticed that when you're talking about these really important issues that you can add a little extra to it? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to lean into a lot of things <laughs> uh, with, with this series, but what that allows us to do is to um, speak from the heart and then use the data point um, or the bullet or the slide in to sort of ground it in something that is um, rooted in fact. Right. Um, Because you can, to Kirsten's point, you can see, you know, our face when we're talking about something um, and it might be really, really painful. And that's the thing that makes you pay attention. But if you disagree with the spirit of what I'm saying, you're entitled to do so. It's just a little bit harder for you to disagree with something that is factual. Uh, And so every single one of the things that that slide in 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 those moments uh, is often linked to an, an article that we found. Right. Whether it's, you know. Uh, Pew Research or or something like that. Um, Because again, we're not really here to debate with you. Uh, We just want to present this uh, as something to discuss. Um, And what we found is by simply having the conversation ourselves, we are inviting other people that have their own conversations. And so it could be, hey, the next time I have a conversation about, let's say, politics or something that intersects with politics, like a social issue, I can refer to this conversation that I saw online between this couple. And, and I, just, I just found that it, it helps to make certain points stick a little bit more. And again, going back to, to, to Kirsten and your earlier point about video, like it just helps to make it real. 
a little bit more real. It's not just a little, an article that I tweet or something like that. Like we really are trying to help bring some of those things to life. And that's one of the benefits of, of using this as a medium of communication. Kirsten, since I'm such a big, rich, and regular fan, I have no doubt that network executives are going to be knocking on your door soon. If they are, who's going to pick up this type of show? Is it going to be the food network? Is it going to be the financial network? Is it going to be history channel? Is it the, <laughs> rela- is it the relationship network? Who, where does this show end up? <laughs> Please tell me what channel the relationship network is. <laughs> um, I think in in my vision, it's it's definitely more of a lifestyle channel, like own, you know, Oprah Winfrey's uh, channel or like an HGTV or even just like a streaming platform where there's a large female woman kind of audience um, that's really engaged and kind of just loves stuff like this. I don't know. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think this would be so. I'll, I'll tell you when we were. Um, I would say Netflix, if anyone. And the reason why is because when we were creating the show, we were drawing inspiration from shows that we've actually seen on Netflix. So the original intent of the show was for us to have people like you over for dinner. And over the years, I've gotten to know you and love you. And and I know what your favorite drink is and what your favorite foods are. And I would invite you to our home or to some place and we would prepare a meal um, that was in part inspired by our appreciation for you. And we would have a conversation with you and then give your viewers and listeners an opportunity to understand who Doc G is behind, you know, earn and invest, right? And so that was the, the the original purpose. And so we would basically go down the line and have all of our money friends and have these really deep, insightful conversations and then prepare a meal that was inspired by them. But obviously we didn't do that. And that was basically an idea that we ripped from um, Jerry Seinfeld, who has a show on Netflix called Comedians in the Car Getting Coffee, where he's interviewing other of his comedian friends and he picks them up in a car that is inspired by them. We just loved that idea. And we said, you know what, what's our version of that? Now there was another element to that from cooking that we drew uh, inspiration from. And that was from Jamie Oliver, um, who we think, I think is a brilliant chef and just makes it real. He embraces the screw ups and the, the mess in a way that I, that I really, really appreciated. It wasn't always about perfection. And the meals I always thought were just simple and focused on uh, quality and, and, and really a great technique. And then the last one, which I think was really, really um, influential, and I would say probably most influential would be uh, on HBO, The Shop, which uh, is a program, I think, produced by LeBron James, where he does the exact same thing. It's it's basically mimicking, honoring the role that the barbershop plays in the Black community as a place where people come together uh, several times and engage in thoughtful conversation. And so in the shop, LeBron James invites sports athletes, people in media, business, and politics all to the barbershop. They all get a haircut. They all have really thoughtful conversation. And so that was the original idea. And so for me, I would say Netflix or an (laughs) HBO um, people with very deep pockets, but even saying that just seems absolutely crazy to me. But <laughs> you know what? I, I'm I'm going to put it out there in the universe and see what happens. If that happens, I will I will 
I'll, I'll send you a hundred bucks. <laughs> I, I may, I may take you up on that. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with the shop, but Jamie Oliver, I used to watch the naked chef way back yeah, when, huh? and he brought in some of those aspects too, right? He would cook for someone who then come in and they'd all eat together. Yeah. And it, it was that, that kind of family aspect, which was really cool. Certainly also the COVID pandemic affected the way you could carry out those plans you originally had. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, obviously we could do it through zoom, but it's, it's just not quite the same, <laughs> you know? And so there's nothing like it. And you know, the other thing I would say is for me, especially Anthony Bourdain played such an important role in my life. Uh, and I love his, his, his creativity. And so, you know, you wouldn't say, let's say, Parts Unknown is a food show or a travel show. It's both. It's, it's both. And it's it's actually its own genre. You know what I mean? It's its own thing. And so for us, that's like the North Star. You know, if we could just create something that allows us to be ourselves, it's actually really, really cool. You know, that's just a really, really cool thing. And, um, you know, we're actually, you know, you're catching us in the middle of a of a production week where we shot an episode yesterday and we're shooting another episode on Friday two completely different episodes, but both deeply personal, you know, and there's still a lot of work and research and collecting photography and video and all these things to help bring it to life. But oftentimes I do sort of reflect on, on Anthony Bourdain and I may just even have like some of his stuff just going in the background as we're, we're meeting and thinking about what we want to tap into because his show and, and really any of the shows that he did, I thought were great examples of breaking the mold and and then um, as a result, sort of setting a new standard for content going forward. And so if, if we can do that, mission accomplished. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain was such a loss mm-hmm. that I definitely still feel today as I see his face come up on Netflix or in social media. And it's true. He his show started about food, then became about travel, but quickly became about life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what was so magnetic about him and his personality. And I see that essence in Money on the Table, too, because you cover all of those things. But ultimately, what I hear you doing is talking about your lives. And that's really instructive to the rest of us who are trying to figure out how do we maneuver relationships and money and even cooking. So sum it up for us. Unfortunately, we live in a Twitter world. The two sentencer that's going to help people know what money on the table is about. What can you tell them in a little clip that'll get them to watch the show? Because I think it's definitely some of the best YouTube stuff I've seen anytime recently. Thank you for that. Um, I would say money on the table is our way of inviting people over for dinner. You know, we get a lot of um, questions or about like, how did you guys do this? So what did you think about it? And I was like, you know, honestly, you know, having people over for dinner is probably the best way to, to really capture the essence of, of a particular idea or our approach or the way that we think about something. And so it's our virtual invitation to the world to join us for dinner and have a healthy conversation. Our mission is to inspire better conversations about money and we think the best way to do that is to show people how we do it and to also give others an opportunity, not just to learn from us, but to teach us in their reactions to the things that they heard us uh, discuss uh, over a delicious meal and maybe a few adult beverages. 
I have to tell you how upset I am because I had told you guys before that I had a talk scheduled for, I think it was October or November in Atlanta. And of course, it just turned virtual, but I was in the process of inviting myself over to your house for dinner. which obviously is not going to happen now. Julian and Kirsten Saunders, the builders and creators of the Rich and Regular platform. The YouTube show is Money on the Table. I think you are remiss if you don't catch it. It is a wonderful show. Thank you guys for coming on today on Earn and Invest. Thanks for having us. Thank you, brother. Sweet. Awesome. (laughs) Excellent, guys. Thanks a lot. I think this is a great conversation. I really think it's one we need to be having right now. Yeah. Especially with the changes in what's happening in our world. So I I like that we were kind of able to end it on a positive note. And um, you guys put some good stuff out there about what to do with businesses right now. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, It it was a very fluid conversation. I think it it makes a lot of sense. So thanks, Doc. It was a great opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.